Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Jenny. So, hey, if you've been with us, um, if you haven't been with us for the last couple uh, weeks, we're in week uh, 14, I believe, of a Mark series, going through the Gospel of Mark. We love just working through scriptures and different books and really getting into the context and what they have to say. Uh, Sort of about week 14, you can go YouTube those or podcast them if you want to catch up. Um, But for the last few weeks, we've seen Jesus walking through this region of Galilee, healing and teaching all the people there. He's teaching with more authority than they've ever seen. He's perplexing them with miracles. He's driving the religious leaders mad because everything he does exposes their dogmatic and uncompassionate ways with their religion. And then now he's been traveling to the Gentile region. So Gentile, remember, literally by definition, not a Jew. So it's just everything outside of Jewish culture and people to people who have no allegiance to him or owe him anything. And yet after miracles and after teachings, the Gentiles themselves said this at the end of last chapter. They were astonished beyond measure, saying he has done all things well. So again, this is people that have no allegiance to this Jewish rabbi. He has done all things well. And starting in the middle of chapter 6, we're in chapter 8 today, but we start seeing this pattern start to form, okay? Where there's this miraculous feeding of the multitudes, that was in the 5,000. Then there's the Pharisees have this moment of unbelief and questioning. Then there's Jesus' acts of healing, and then there's a confession about who Jesus is. And now in this chapter, we're right back to that same exact cycle. The first feeding, couple notes, began in majority Jewish territory with the 5,000. Okay, and again, they just counted uh, the, the head of households were the men, so there could have been up to 10 or 15,000. Um, and then now we encounter another miraculous feeding with the 4,000 believed to be in majority Gentile territory. Okay, there's, of course, mixture of Jews and Gentiles in both. Okay, but tracking with me. Um, so now, of course, there's a few comparisons we should make of the feeding of the 4,000 and the 5,000. Um, is he just doing the same thing again, or is it different? Yes and no. Let's compare a few things. First are the numbers. So this is some of the nerdy stuff that I just get stoked about. Okay, so think, track with me. Again, we get some of the hints of the location that Jesus is in, but biblically speaking, numbers, actual numbers, have values to it. They're assigned something to the numbers, okay? So in general, the number five, biblically, is usually connected to the Pentateuch, or the first five books of the Bible, which are also synonymous with Jewish culture because that's what they would have learned at an early age. So it's, it's kind of describing the Jewish origin story. So five often represents the Jews. The four, on the other hand, with the feeding of the 4,000, four represents kind of this quote, the four corners of the world. So all the flat earth believers can give a hearty amen, right? There's corners, right? Um, the four corners is another way, way of just saying the world, okay? So if like Jewish life and Yahweh is the center, the four corners would be like everything outside of that, okay? So this would represent anyone outside of that, anyone who would be not Jewish, not a Jew, so by definition, Gentiles. So this is a big deal. The very fact that this Jewish rabbi is desiring to reach out beyond the Jewish people, is turning upside down the expectations of so many Jewish people, right? These aren't the priorities they would have chosen for their Messiah, okay? It would have just been with them in their agenda all day long. But if we look at the numbers, we can not, not definitively, but potentially see one miraculous feeding to the Jews and how they respond, and one miraculous feeding to the Gentiles and how they respond. 
Now, to take it a step further in a nerdy, ter nerdy territory, the other numbers have potential significance too and were commonly used symbolically for the Jews. So when the 5,000, there were 12 baskets left over. Okay, 12 is kind of universally the number for all of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, so at the end of the 5,000, there were 12 baskets. Okay, at the end of the 4,000, they have seven baskets. Okay, real quick, two things about seven. First, is that eventually there will be seven early er, leaders in the early church that were told in Acts chapter 6 when the church was growing rapidly and the apostles were trying to keep up with serving all the people and teaching all the people. They were said there's not enough people. So this is Acts chapter 6. They say, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint this duty of serving. So it's possible Jesus is pointing towards the future establishment of his church, okay? Now remember, the gospel of Mark is written years after Jesus' death and resurrection to the early church leaders being oppressed by Rome. So as a reader of gospel of Mark, you might get this. It might be like, oh yeah, that's a connection there. But no wonder the disciples in the moment are a little bit confused. Like how, how would they know that? How would they know the future is going to be that? Most likely, seven is significant because it's also the number for perfect completion. Going back to Genesis, the Genesis creation narrative. Okay, read this with me. Genesis 2, verse 2. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work he had done. God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from his work, and he, was done, he had done in creation. So, Jesus could be saying, on one hand, he's providing everything for the Jews, five, in their fullness, twelve. He's also providing for the Gentiles, four, and he's reunifying the world together as a complete new creation, seven. Okay? Nerdy, right? Kind of cool, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. Changing gears from looking at the numbers, okay, the second point of comparison between the two feedings is the reason Jesus has compassion on the people and then how he acts. The 5,000. This is chapter 6, verse 34. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them. Why? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. Okay? Now let's go to chapter 8, verse 2. I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. Okay, Jesus' own compassions are different to the two different people groups. How he acts on, on the compassions to the 5,000, remember majority Jews, he sees them like sheep without a shepherd, so he teaches them. To the 4,000 majority Gentiles, he sees their physical state that they've been without food, so what does he do? He feeds them. Now, this is cool, and we're going to step further, and I'll run through this briefly. But Jewish history starts with Abraham. Okay, it starts with Abraham, follows that line all the way until the Jewish people were enslaved in Egypt. Does this sound familiar? Yes? Okay, good. Uh, remember, you can get coffee anytime. Um, Egypt is where they should have died off, right? Like legacy over, they were just enslaved forever. Egypt should have just crushed the line. But God radically saved Israel out of Egypt, so they had kind of this new birth narrative, right? And as you know the story, they traveled in the desert, and the whole time God provided this manna bread to fall from heaven to sustain them, OK? 
Okay? So fast forward to the feeding of the 5,000 two chapters ago when they are sitting on the mountainside and God, through Jesus, is providing for them food. All the Jews are reminded, of course, of the Exodus narrative and how God provided through Moses. Okay? It would, for them, it would have been like, oh yeah, that looks super familiar, which means that Jesus feeding them right then in the feeding of the 5,000 was not their origin story for God's provision. Okay, Jesus feeding them pointed them back in their history to a point. This is a throwback for them. They already had that in their history. What God's people needed right there wasn't that new story. It was to be retaught the heart of the law. He taught them. He saw there are sheep without shepherds, so he teaches them. As seen in the Pharisees, the, the law was there, but the heart of why it was given to them in the first place was lost. Now, for the Gentiles, they do not have any of that history. They have come from all over. Think about it, mixed cultures. Uh, people come from one God, from many gods, from no gods. So for Jesus to show up to Gentiles and just start teaching them Jewish law wouldn't make sense. Like, why would they care? By definition of being a Gentile, they are not a Jew. This wouldn't make sense to us. So Jesus here in the 4,000 is giving them an origin story. What the Gentiles needed was to know they were cared for and welcomed to into God's family. All they've seen from the Pharisees so far is it is impossible for you as unclean people to enter into us, the clean people. So for them, Jesus is revealing to them that he is this compassionate, gracious God, meeting with them, providing for them, teaching them a God who wants relationship with them as well, right? So these people are gathered with him for three days, which, come on, as we nerd out about numbers, I mean, three is like one of the most holy numbers, right? It's just, it's everything about resurrection, uh, three makes a crowd. I mean, it's just a big number, right? So they're in a place that the disciples call a desolate place, a wilderness of sorts. Jesus is on this mountainside, miraculously providing bread for them. He's welcoming the Gentiles into their own Exodus story. And it's not with Moses, it's not this big past, it's right then, right there with Jesus himself, which is really cool, because if they choose to follow Jesus then, it will only be because of Jesus. Not some obligation, not a religious affiliation or some heritage, literally because this incredibly gracious teacher gave hungry people bread. Which leads to the third observation is that Jesus gives the same mission to his disciples. He charges his disciples to practice out his compassion. Jesus has compassion for the hungry, so he sends his followers to feed the hungry. This is chapter 8, verse 6. And he took the seven loaves, and having given, th given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. In both feeding narratives, the disciples are the ones handing out the food. They're the ones making the connection, serving the community. It's Jesus who has the spark of compassion. He's the compelling compassion part, and it is Jesus alone who blesses the food. And notice the real blessing. The blessing is not that they had a little bit of food. It was the multiplication of the food. That was the blessing. If the amount of food was the problem, they could have gone out and bought enough food. Right, and the 5,000, remember, they kind of joke about, like, is this going to take a year's wages? Should we pool our money and do this? They could have maybe provided for themselves if this was just about food, but it was supernatural because of the multiplication right there um, that only God could do. 
Fourth and last note about the feedings. At the end of the day, I do not think that we should be afraid to say he did it again. Okay, it's easy, especially as I'm going through it and studying through it, to want it to be so different and want to juxtapose everything. And what's he doing here? Jesus, everything he did was nuanced and mind-blowing, but he also is the image of a God who is faithful. The God who provides salvation, first to the Jews and to the Gentiles, as Paul says later in Romans. And if God did the same provision over and over and over again, would that be enough for his people? How many times, maybe you've had this happen in your own life, can a bill be miraculously paid for? Or something found on an MRI scan um, that's bad news that is just miraculously gone? Okay. How many times, or God answers, he, he meets these specific needs to where it gets old, and it just we forget about it. A story for me that I always come back to, one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament is, and real briefly, is when the Israelites cross over the Jordan River being led by Joshua, um, a lot like the Red Sea with Moses. And the sea is huge. It's there, uh, the Jordan River, and uh, God commands the priest to take the Ark of the Covenant out into the water. Everywhere the Ark of the Covenant is, the waters part. Okay, a lot like the Moses story, but it parts. And here's what's cool. He did it again. He did the same thing again that he did with Moses, right? He did now with Joshua, but here's where it's different. This is Joshua 4, real quick. Take 12, uh, the Lord commanded Joshua to take 12 men to take 12 stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you and lay them down in the place where you lodged tonight. Why? Verse 6 of, of Joshua 4, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do those stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. That's so cool. I keep coming back to that. God instructed practices and reminders so that the people would not forget what God has done for them and that they would actively teach the next generation the stories of God. Just real briefly, I've, I've been trying to do this myself, but like, let's just take a look at your own life. What systems do you have in place to not forget God's provision in your life? Kind of in one ear, out the other. Like, what, what do you have? Right? What, what, what markers on your life timeline can you look back and say, yep, God, God provided there. That's, that was totally God. It's easier to look back than to look forward, right? But just think about it. What systems, what markers do you have in place? It might be good to have some of that because we are prone to forget. And this is exactly what happens if we do not recognize and realize God's provision. Look at the next line in chapter 8 of Mark today, verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Okay. Now, my kids like to ride bikes. We love to ride bikes. And I won't mention names, but the other day we were getting back from a bike ride, and we get into, we have this kind of carport in our backyard, and we get in, and I say, can you please go park your bike? You know, seems reasonable, right? My kid goes, can you do it? And I reply, no, it's your responsibility, your bike, you can put it away, to which then my kid screams, you never help me. I'm not as helpful as mom, but it still stung. Like, I was about ready to make the list of like, okay, kid, you know, this kind of thing. But listen, if we don't recognize ways that God is with us and God is for us, 
then we demand signs for him to do that. Right, show up now. Where have you been? Why are you never around? You never help me. Anyone ever yelled that? Hopefully not. This is what the Pharisees want. Tell us, show us definitively that you are the Son of God. Ironically, when he does, what do they do? They kill him, right? Right here, show us that you're it. And I would think as Jesus knows this in his heart, this is why in verse 12, chapter 8, he sighed deeply in his spirit. I just imagine, like, he just knows these people. He knows what he has come to do, and he knows that these Pharisees are not hearing, they're not seeing, they're not understanding what he is doing. So he responds, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. See, the the irony is Jesus has come to fulfill the very law that they think they are following so closely and so well. In fact, earlier in chapter 3 of Mark, uh, the scribes and Pharisees come down from Jerusalem and confront Jesus and say, like, from what sign are you, or what power are you doing these things from? And as he, as he says it, they say, oh, you must be possessed. You, it's only by demons that you're driving out demons, right? They don't even get it. They can't get past that this could be the Messiah. But Jesus refuses to give in to their demands, and he moves on. And as they're a bit away, Jesus uses this as a teaching moment. Verse 15, he cautioned them to be his disciples. He cautioned them, saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, This is confusing for the disciples, and here's why. They were thinking bread. Maybe it was lunchtime, and this is just a rough analogy from Jesus. But verse 14, it said, Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they only had one loaf with them in the boat. And they began discussing, this is verse 16, began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. (laughs) Of course Jesus is using an analogy here, right? Okay, leavening with, with yeast or something like that affects the whole loaf. So using bread as the analogy for, you know, thought life, allegiance, where your, your heartfelt convictions are at, and leaven as an analogy for what is influencing that, to beware of the ways of life that may lead them away from the way of God. It also has deeper meanings for the Jews. Okay, hearkening back to the Exodus days, when the people are freed from Exodus, they were told on Passover the largest remembrance of God's faithful deliverance to have unleavened bread. They should refrain from adding anything in the dough to make it rise. Now, when the exodus finally happens and they're leaving Egypt, this is Exodus chapter 12, verse 39, they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. This is a big deal. This is part of their rich history. The unleavened bread was a sign of foundation. It was all they had. It was the base level for them. Remember, they didn't have time to make anything. Um, So they were dependent on God, and God was enough for them. God alone provided, provided and rescued them, not any work that they added in themselves. So the leaven represents the added works of man versus the grace of God right? They weren't, they weren't forbidden to have leavened bread throughout the generations except on Passover, but to say that something was added to the bread is to talk about contamination, corruption, right? Bread that has not been set apart and set holy, but bread that has been curated for a specific agenda. 
What Jesus is referring to here is warning his disciples with the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod is adding of their staunch religion, their dogma, their selfish agenda to the bread. Um, one of my favorite authors, N.T. Wright, and we've put this book out here for you guys to read if you want. It's called Mark for Everyone. He writes this, The Pharisees are diluting the vision. They want God to set up a kingdom for the benefit of the Jews who can observe the law with great strictness not for the benefit of the wider company Jesus has in mind. Herod and his entourage are deluding the vision. They want God to establish their royal family as true kings of Israel. Neither of these comes near the mark. However, this generation are led astray by both. And for us, reading this account from our angle, from this kind of top-down view, because we get so much of the story, um, it's easy to see the corruption. It's easy to see, like, yeah, the Pharisees are just, they're not doing it, they're adding it, you know, this kind of thing. But when you're in the midst of it, when it's right in front of their eyes, it's harder to see the issues going on. And Jesus grills them. This is verse 17 of chapter 8. And Jesus says, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? Okay, Jesus is so brilliant. Okay, this is one of those moments where you just have to appreciate Jesus as the teacher. Okay, we always, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the Messiah. He's also a just fantastic teacher. Okay, the fact that he had, grew, he had grown up learning the history of Israel. He'd been steeped in, Jew, in rich Jewish heritage. Um, there are certain phrases uh, or, or questions that we might get confused about when we read them, but they're hyperlinks to a time and a place. Okay, for example, in our culture, if I was to walk around and just say, four score and seven years ago. Does that sound familiar? A little bit. I didn't have the deep voice, okay? But uh, like, right, right, Abraham Lincoln, like Declaration of Independence, right? Or if I was to walk around and say like, oh, I have a dream, like that, that hits something, right? That hit something. Dr. King, his context of, of viewing this world of equality, that he had this dream, right? These phrases take you to a time and a place, or we say context. Jesus' day, to say, you, you have eyes that do not see and ears that do not hear, is an immediate hyperlink to the prophet Jeremiah, okay? I'm going to turn there real fast. You can write this down, Jeremiah chapter 5. In Jeremiah's day, it's really similar. The people of Israel are experiencing rampant idolatry. They're, they're experiencing greed from the religious leaders of their time and false prophets leading them away from God. Jeremiah himself even cries out, this is kind of God through Jeremiah, cries out, go through the streets and see if you can even find a single righteous person. But this is what it is, Jeremiah 5:21. Hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but see not. Who have ears but hear not? Do you not fear me, declares the Lord? Do you not tremble before me? And a, a verse later, but this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They have turned aside and gone away. And it happens. In the history, the people experience exile. They experience capture and hardship due to their hard hearts. Oh, and by the way, Jeremiah was believed to be eventually stoned to death by his own people because he was calling them out and he didn't like that. Does that sound familiar at all? Right? So for Jesus to bring them to that time is like saying, hey, beware that you are not becoming like the Jews in Jeremiah's time. Don't repeat this history of God's people hardening their hearts 
but be different, actually move towards repentance and re-covenanting with your God, Yahweh. He reminds them of what has just happened with the feedings, and it's not like they forgot. They answer readily back to Mark chapter 8, verse 19. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said seven. Back to those numbers, five, 12, four, seven. Any way you're spinning these numbers, he's just pointing to one thing. This is the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. He's not John the Baptist. He's not Elijah. He's not just another prophet. This is the God, man, Savior they have been waiting for. And he questions them, do you not yet understand? Another way to put that is you, you're viewing this. You're watching me. You are with me. How can you be so blind? Now, as Jesus is awesome, not untimely or coincidentally, he runs into a blind man, <laughs> right? They're back now in primarily Jew, Jewish region in Bethsaida, and some people bring him a blind man to, to heal him, possibly to bless him. They just say, put hands on him. Verse 23, he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Do you remember last week where he gives the guy a wet willy and grabs his tongue? You know, like this one, we get another kind of decently odd way of healing. Uh, but this man encounters the miracle of sight. He can, he can see, sort of, right? The fact that the man says they look like trees walking about tells us that he probably wasn't blind at birth. He had some reference for what things were. Maybe something happened to him. But interestingly, though, this is an obvious, obvious analogy for the blindness of the people, most likely specifically the disciples, and this makes a ton of sense. For the disciples, who is Jesus to them? Well, he, he's like this prophet, he's this rabbi who does miracles, but he's not fighting Rome like we thought he would, and he teaches with authority, but it's really scary to think about following him. Right? It's this fuzzy picture of who is this Jesus. But then Jesus goes back to the blind man. Verse 25, Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly, right? This was true sight. No blurriness, no questioning of what things are. He can see clearly. The disciples are starting to get it, but Jesus was now prompting them to see clearly. It's interesting, he doesn't send the man back to the village. Did you notice that? Verse 26, and he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village, Okay, this is a little speculatory, but some environments are more susceptible to corruption than others. Bethsaida was believed to be the area, the area where Herod Antipas, who he was dealing with before, his brother Philip, right, he, his brother Philip, governed that area and made improvements to the village and got Rome to pay for it. Okay, so just think about the, the layers of corruption that could be in that area, right? Talk about the bread being corrupted with the yeast of the Herod's family in this village, right? So don't go back there. But the blindness is lifted, and we're going to end soon, don't worry, with the disciples getting it in Peter's great confession. Although, and we'll see next week, it is still a little bit veiled. Verse 27, on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? What are the rumors you're hearing about me? He's told them, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. These are the things that are being said about Jesus. Like, this is the things you're hearing. These are the things you're influenced by. These prompted me to look up Jesus 
bumper stickers, right? Because this is like, this is the kind of things we're doing. So like, it's things like this, like, oh, Jesus was a liberal. Okay, things like this, oh, Jesus was a conservative. Okay, you've seen these things, you're just hearing these rumors about Jesus. This one was interesting, if Jesus had a gun, he'd still be alive today. <laughs> Which I just have a lot of questions for, and I would also argue he did have some guns. Um, <laughs> This other one where Jesus definitely just saw that, right? This kind of thing of Jesus is watching you all the time and judging you. And then there's some really deep spiritual ones like this one. Truth decay, brush up on your Bible. I mean, that's, that's pretty deep. And then, of course, my personal favorite, let us taco about Jesus. I mean, what else do you need, right? I had, a, I had a lot of, wasted way too much time on that. But for the people who have been with him, the people who know him, they know the sound of his voice. They know the way that he talks. They know the way he walks, the way he gets up in the morning. He goes to bed at night. The people who most intimately know Jesus as a man, Jesus asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about it. They see it right? This is a crucial moment for the disciples. They see that he is, in fact, the Christ. But I'm really excited. I want to plug him. Next week, Steve Wolbert is going to be up here, and he's going to teach us through the rest of eight and into chapter nine. Really, I'm actually super jealous of his passage. There's really cool stuff. But we'll see how even their understanding then, if you confess he's the Christ, their understanding of then what the Christ is then to do is pretty veiled and has a lot of their agenda mixed into it. So don't miss next week. Steve will be up here. Um, but we saw through all the different stories today that once again, Jesus is surprising the people and they don't know what to make of it, right? It messes with their agendas for the disciples, the Pharisees, and the Gentiles. Jesus is making a way to include the Gentiles into the kingdom of God that he alone is bringing. Jesus refuses to meet the Pharisees' demands to provide all the, the signs they want. Jesus is challenging the disciples to watch out for this Jewish standard of holiness that nobody can achieve, right? Jesus shows he isn't the type of warrior Messiah that they were all placing their hopes on. It becomes clear knowing Jesus is the way for them to be reminded of God's heart once again, to set aside their human concerns their man agendas, their man agendas, and trust the living God and find salvation only in him and not their ways and plans. And guys, we can't help but relate to this, right? As a people in this world, we don't even know the ways we are blind to the agendas that we have, the ways we want God to work for us. We want our work, our will to be done under the lens of following God. We don't even know it. This is why we always have to end with grace. We always have to end with the grace of the cross, that our Savior, and we'll see this through the Gospel of Mark, came and did the ultimate righteous deed in laying his own life down for the sake of many. And now, because of that, grace is available because we desperately need it. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot rid ourselves of our own sin. But he who knew no sin became sin for our sake so that in him we might become the righteousness of God in 2 Corinthians 5. For many of us today in this room, myself, like Peter, we have confessed with our mouths and believed in our hearts that Jesus is the Christ, like Peter. Now the question is, have we surrendered then to the Christ that we confess? 
I recognize many things to be true, but I don't give my heart to many of them. I don't model my life after anything that just feels good. Do we surrender to the Savior as the only one who saves us from ourselves, from our own sin? And this is the last thought I want to leave us before we respond. It struck me that Jesus reveals who Jesus is. That might sound really simple and silly, but Jesus is the one. If you're struggling to see Jesus, struggling to really know if he's the Christ, if you even want to follow him, have you taken that to Jesus? Have you said, reveal yourself to me, Jesus. Show me who you are. Like, he is the one who can reveal. It's not a pastor or a church service. It's not culture or politics or a book or a song or a walk on the beach. These are not bad things, but these things are not Jesus. Okay, these things should all be conduits leading and fostering an environment to go to Jesus alone. And if you, are, if you were one who was hungry for the living God and have found that living bread in Jesus, it's now our job to show hungry, other hungry people the bread giver. Okay, we don't take the place of Jesus. We just show where the hungry can get fed. Jesus is the only Jesus. Anyone who pretends to be is like pretending to be a lion in front of a lion. It's going to be found out really fast, right? So when we respond today, we are responding to the true bread giver, the true great shepherd who has compassion on his people and by grace and grace alone welcomes us into the family of all who believe. Okay, let's respond. You know how we respond in song, in prayer, in giving, and then communion. The table be open. Let me pray and let's respond to our good God.